Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's last week in AI podcast. We can hear a chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Krenikov. I finished my PhD focused on AI research at Stanford earlier this year, and I now work at a generative AI startup. And I'm Jeremy. I'm your other host, Jeremy. I guess I have the last name. It's Harris. Uh, I'm the co-founder of Gladstone AI, which is an AI safety company. We do a bunch of stuff on technical AI safety, AI alignment, and catastrophic risk, and AI policy. So there we go. Um, cool, uh, cool week so far. I think again, you know, last week we had these big, like a couple big stories. I feel like again we have a couple of big stories or less of them, but they're still pretty big. We have a couple kind of more under the radar stories, I think. Yeah, like yeah. We don't have anything that'll be big on the New York Times, like Gemini or mm-hmm. the EU AI Act. But if you're a regular listener, some of the stuff we'll be covering, I think, will have you uh, pretty intrigued <laughs> just because uh, we keep covering and getting back to these themes. So that'll be fun. Before we get going, I do want to give a quick shout out to a new Apple uh, podcast review from PWTM2, uh, which is uh, another very friendly, positive five-star review. We you know, love to see it. Obviously, we are human beings and have egos, <laughs> so it does feel nice to see you know, these feedbacks. It's kind of funny to see that the only criticism is that this reviewer wishes it were longer. <laughs> and uh, as uh, this person does mention, a deep dive section. And to that, yeah. uh, we do intend to do more deep dive episodes. We've done one on X Risk, which was a lot of fun. That was like a two hour episode all about that. And there's. A lot of stuff, you know, hardware and policy and uh, you name it that we intend to get around to. Those do take some prep and some planning. But uh, yeah, based on this feedback, we are going to try and, and make it happen. So thank you for a view. And uh, as always, we do appreciate these kinds of reviews. Or you can just get in touch directly. Email us at contact at lastweekin.ai. Thank you, Peter. Alrighty, well, let's get going with the news in our first section, tools and apps. The first story is Google DeepMind unveils its most advanced AI image generator, Imagen 2. So that's the story. Google has its own text-to-image model, Imagen, that was unveiled, I think, earlier uh, this past year. And now we have the second uh version of that called Imagine 2 that is really good that's uh yeah you have to go and and look at the link and as always we'll have links to all the news stories in the description but uh basically it's improved in particular prompt faithfulness so this is something Dolly 3 is also really good at if you give it a very descriptive uh kind of set of text that has a lot of the details the images are better at uh, being kind of true to that description instead of just making stuff up. And as we were first imagined, it's really good at text. So it's really good for logos and, and things like that. And uh, it, yeah, it's just really good. And it is now available to developers and cloud customer through their Imagine API. 
I think we need to do like a special reel of Jeremy and Andre try to explain images at the audience <laughs> without using images. So like we always, it's always devolves to be just being like at some point you just gotta go check it out, and you do. It's really cool. Um, there's there's a but there's a bunch of cool stuff that I don't know. You really you can only see kind of visually. Um, one of the things I would love to be able to describe is the effect of one of the little tweaks that they make. So they add this specialized aesthetics model that they train based on human preferences that's designed to give you like this this tunable dial to literally just like increase the aesthetics i guess of the image that's kind of what they call it like there's an aesthetic score and they show you the effect of like tuning that dial upwards they're showing you a an image of a flower basically it's generated and as you dial up the aesthetics you're kind of seeing more and more of um I don't know, more and more beauty. I, I don't know how to call it. I mean, it is trained, you know, based on human preferences. So all of those sort of uh, weird, hard to quantify things like good lighting, framing, exposure, sharpness, stuff like that, all of that kind of increases with that dial. So I thought that was really cool. Um, so you can actually provide as well reference style images in combination with the text prompt. So something we've seen in other cases too, but sort of seeing what used to be called, in a way, a kind of neural style transfer. We used to do this in, in simpler days when we would take an image and say, hey, redo this image, but in the style of like this other image. Um, so you could get, you know, flowers in the style of Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night or something like that. Well, this is that, but for truly generative AI, where we're not taking a, an original existing image, we're actually creating that new image in a particular style. So now you're able to combine a style image and the text prompt to get something you want. And they also interestingly mentioned it is integrated with SynthID, which is something Google's been developing to watermark and like identify these pieces of AI-generated content. So this is all part of Google, you know, gradually more and more looking at how do we actually make sure that we can attribute uh, these generated uh, these outputs of generative models to the models themselves. Yeah, that's an awesome detail, and it seems like maybe more and more is going to be the standard kind of playbook of integrating the sort of watermarking. Quick correction on my part, the first Imagine came out actually in May of 2022. <laughs> Feels like forever ago, but that just shows how quickly uh, time flies. And at the time we covered it, Imagine was interesting in part because it was very simple. They just took a straightforward model and just scaled it up, just made it really big and trained it. And that turned out to work really well. We don't really have details on the technical bits of this so much, but it's probably something similar. It's probably the improve improvements are coming from a more robust training set with a lot of captioning and, and just, uh, you know, good data. They, as you said, also showcase a lot of ways to use this. So you can condition it on both a text and image. So you can say, here's a context image with, I don't know, like some plants. And here's a description of a product in something that will have the product with plants or something like that. It also has outpainting where you expand beyond the borders of an image, inpainting where you fill in a bit of an image. Uh, a lot of these capabilities that are now you know, sort of standard, you get them also with Adobe or something. And as with Adobe, uh, this is also on, covered by their uh, Vertex AI's indemnification commitment. So, now, why would you bring that up right now, Andre? <laughs> Is it possible? <laughs> well, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe we have some more news. But uh, 
yes, they do say, just to be very clear, this is copyright and indemnification. So that means that if you use this in your product development, uh, you are protected, so to speak, by Google. If you get sued for copyright, uh, then you will be fine. You can count on Google to bail you out, so to speak. Well, it's very late in the year to be awarding Segway of the year, but I think we just got it. Um, I think this very smoothly brings us to our next big story, which is about Anthropic, not Google. Uh, but now we're talking about Anthropic will help users if they get sued for copyright infringement. And uh, this is, you can view it as an extension of a kind of story we've been covering for a long time on the podcast. As we started to see, you know, first made with Adobe and OpenAI flirting with this stuff too, introducing indemnification for their users. Essentially, this is the idea that if you use, you know, Adobe Firefly to generate images and then you get sued for copyright infringement because maybe somebody claims that your images violate their copyright or, or whatever, um, Adobe will come in and defend you in court, help defend you in court. That's indemnification. They're throwing their lot in with you. We've seen OpenAI you know, put up the, the, same, uh, the same commitments, Microsoft as well. Google in different ways, and, and I think there were some asterisks there that were really interesting. Now, you know, the, the final shoe just dropped, Anthropic, the, the third sort of frontier lab saying, hey, you know what? Screw it. We're doing it too. Uh, everybody can get, uh, everybody gets indemnification. You get indemnification. You get indemnification. Everybody gets indemnification. Um, yeah, so pretty, pretty big development. I will note. Um, so what they say here is, <clears throat> excuse me, under the updated terms of service, so the commercial terms of service, they say we will defend our customers from any copyright infringement claim made against them for their authorized use, their authorized use of our services or their outputs. And we will pay for any approved settlements or judgments that result. I'm not a lawyer. But I believe this goes a little bit beyond traditional indemnification. They're actually offering to essentially subsidize or pay entirely for settlements that get awarded if you actually get found through, not guilty because it's civil, but anyway, responsible for copyright infringement. So if my understanding is right, this is actually maybe even a step further beyond what we've seen with uh, some of these other companies. Yeah, uh, the fine print of these, uh, I guess, definitely varies. And uh, yeah, it's really kind of interesting to see, as you said, this be a development story where it's becoming an industry standard uh, kind of thing for AI companies to do. Say, okay, if you want to use our models, the legal status of all this is still up in the air. There's a million lawsuits going on, including Anthropic is being sued. So uh, now Anthropic is jumping in with OpenAI, with Microsoft, with Adobe, uh, with uh, probably some other ones I'm forgetting. Uh, Meta, I think also, I'll strike that. (laughs) I'm not sure if Meta has it. yeah, and it, it it seems to be showing that Anthropic is kind of yeah ramping up on the commercialization front. This is by the way for their cloud chatbot. In case you have not been listening and don't know, Anthropic is an OpenAI competitor. Broadly speaking, they have a version of ChatGPT, another chatbot called Cloud, which is I would say still the second best or or roughly as good arguably or better arguably you know it's kind of around in the same realm so uh it's interesting to see them also ramping up to commercialize uh quite you know yeah i think this is definitely needed to be competitive with OpenAI in some sense 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like it does seem to be the new equilibrium point for the market. Like people are just accepting that indemnification is part of what you need to offer. I think also given that Anthropic is so safety focused, you know, I, I wonder how much this factored into their analysis where they're like, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing for the labs to bear in some sense the responsibility for not being able to control the outputs of their systems. And so this would be consistent with Anthropic's philosophy, like kind of safety first philosophy. Um, to some degree, it's also consistent with a more commercial kind of pressures view, and maybe they just you know collided to to make this. Um, I know we have we're fortunate to have a couple of at least a couple of, of very intelligent lawyers who listen to this show. I've, I've had the privilege to speak to a couple of them. So if you happen to have insights into this question of like, is this actually a step beyond what some of the other kind of classical indemnification measures that other labs are putting up, this idea of Anthropic actually paying for approved settlements or judgments, um, we'd be really interested to know. So like, please drop us a comment. I think that's a, it's a really interesting question. Is this an escalation? Are we going even further and will this put pressure on other players to do the same? So, And it is also worth mentioning that this was announced uh, in uh, an announcement that was titled Expanded Legal Protections and Improvements to Our API. So they also are expanding their API. They have this new messages API that will help catch errors early in development uh, so that you can get the best output from anthropic models. Uh, it's actually more like OpenAI now, actually. You, you format it with user assistant, user max tokens. It's, it's a little more structured. Uh, so that's interesting. And they say that they plan to broaden access to a cloud, cloud API in coming weeks, allowing more developers and enterprises to build uh, on that. So yeah, they seem to want to expand use of cloud. On to the lightning round with some more stories about popular tools, starting with MidJourney Alpha is here with AI image generations on the web. So MidJourney, one of the OG, really popular text-to-image uh, models and, and services, is yeah out of Discord, finally, sort of. It's kind of funny. MidJourney has been leading the pack basically since the start in terms of the quality and popularity of their service. But to this day, until I guess this new story, you would have had to sign up to Discord, this uh, kind of messaging uh, service, and use a bot to basically send text messages to a bot and get reply in Discord. You could not do it for any sort of web API. You could browse your library of generated images and other people's images on the MidJourney website, but you could not do it... Uh, to generate images on the website, and and you would have to do like basically command line prompts. You would you would have to do like dash dash aspect ratio two colon three if you wanted to do that. So it was very wonky, and it was actually very impressive how Midjourney was able to still be super successful. Like they were charging for uh, paid uh, subscription to use it, and and millions of people or. I wouldn't say millions, but a ton of people, let's say, were making tons of images. So it is a little bit of a big deal that now there is an offer release now of being able to do this via the website instead of having to sign up on Discord. Yeah, it, it seems weirdly overdue. Like I, I was always, I have a friend who really likes Midjourney, like over and above, you know, stability and other, like some people have just loyalty to these things. And um, yeah, I just couldn't understand, like why Discord? Like why, why this awkward user experience? But it, it's good to see they're emerging from that and just goes to show you, right? If sometimes if your product is just good enough, 
people will do what it takes to access it. Very true. And uh, yeah, now this uh, is still an alpha. So apparently it's limited to users who have generated more than 10,000 images. But it will, of course, broaden in the coming months. And uh, broadly, it appears uh, it supports a lot of what you can do in Discord, but some of the capabilities, some of the more advanced capabilities, you can do like slash blend and, and things like that, like a lot of kind of uh, more advanced techniques that uh, you will not be able to do this just yet. But I would say, yeah, for me, this is exciting because MeJourney is really good. I've used it actually extensively uh, a while back. So... I think uh, I would I would prefer to use this over Discord. And speaking of generating images with AI, Instagram introduces GenAI powered background editing tool. This will allow users of Instagram to change the background of images through prompts for stories. Uh, they can select from preset prompts like on a red carpet, being chased by dinosaurs, surrounded by parties, or create their own prompt. And then once the story is posted with AI-generated backgrounds, our users can interact and try the image generation tool as well. And next up, we have Microsoft drastically expands Azure AI Studio to include Llama 2 model as a service, GPT-4 Turbo with Vision. So this is a, a big next step. You know, you think about that relationship. So, so there are two relationships really that are implied here, right? So you've got Meta, which made Llama 2, so the Meta and Microsoft relationship. So now Meta's uh, model Llama 2 is being served up on Azure AI Studio. And then separately, of course, you have OpenAI, which has that deep partnership with Microsoft. Now GPT-4 with Vision is being offered up at scale as a service. So this is, you can kind of view it as a big expansion, especially for GPT-4 um, in the, the sort of range of, of organizations and entities that will access this uh, this service. So we can see GPT-4 with Vision now get deployed across a wider range of products and services. Um, it uh, it does, you know, provide like a an additional, so the, sorry, Llama in particular is important because it's a lower cost option compared to some of the other kind of GPT series models. You're thinking here about GPT 3.5 and GPT 4. It certainly is really popular in the open source, um, but this is now an option just to make it easier so that you don't have to like you know, host it yourself, serve it up yourself. You can just ping the Microsoft server that's already running Llama 2. So kind of a, a nice option if you're looking for something that's a little bit lower lift uh, and you want to use Llama 2. That's right. This is in public preview and they do offer all the variants of Llama so that you can use a smaller one like 13 billion and 70 billion, uh, you know, depending on your needs. It will be interesting to see if they also start supporting Mixtral and other open source models as well as those uh, gain popularity. And speaking of chatbots, we have kind of a fun story next. Uh, ChatGPT is apparently becoming lazy as it has started asking users to solve their own problems. So this is kind of an anecdotal uh, story that has started emerging, I guess, online. But basically, yeah, that's the headline. ChatGPT has started offering some pretty funny responses, uh, at least in some cases. So people have posted ChatGPT just asking users to figure out their problems for themselves. Yeah, and, and to varying degrees too, right? There's some cases where you know the user will give prompts that historically, it seems, ChatGPT used to answer without any issues uh, or prompts that really it should be able to understand 
And then, yeah, the you know, ChatGPT will either say like, ah, like you know, solve it yourself in the, ex- the more extreme case, or it'll say stuff like, well, you know, it, here's a here's an initial demonstration uh, that shows you like how to solve a, a small chunk of this problem, and just basically repeat this pattern to solve for the whole problem. And so this is really you know, kind of interesting, um, especially in light of some of the other stra- strange behaviors we've seen from ChatGPT and similar models in the past. Um, we we have anecdotal, as you say, reports from some users who would even say that they had to fake being disabled just so the platform could actually like do the task that it, that they were asking it to do. So, sort of interesting, a uh, bit of a bit of a, an exploration into the strange world of prompt engineering and the, the unreasonable effectiveness of certain kinds of prompting strategies. You know, we, we've seen how appealing to emotion can sometimes make uh, these systems more responsive. In this case, app- apparently appealing to disabilities or appealing to other things like that, just to get past some of these roadblocks. But um, OpenAI has come out and said, "Look, we you know we've heard this feedback. Uh, we're looking into it." And uh, they claim that there hadn't been a, a model update since November 11th, and so they are saying it, you know, certainly isn't intentional. They're not sure what's happening, but they're they're looking into it. So hopefully, more news on that front uh, by the next time we have a show. Yeah, this keeps happening where people are saying, "Oh, ChatGPT now is worse," but then OpenAI yeah, yeah, yeah. says, "Oh, we haven't updated; it's the same." But yeah, to list some concrete examples. Uh, there's an example from Twitter of like list all the weeks between now and May 5th, 2024. And ChatGPT says, let's assume current date is X. There are roughly 24 weeks. If you need a more accurate count, you can use a date calculator. Uh, there's other examples of like fill out the CSV with all this data. And it says, oh, the data extraction would be quite lengthy. However, I can provide a file with a single entry as a template and you can fill in the rest of the data as needed, stuff like that. So yeah, uh, not clear if this is just maybe we are starting to notice cases of this happening and it just uh, you know became a thing to uh, note or not, but uh interesting to observe that maybe maybe something is going on we don't know we, we have seen in the past right when this stuff like this comes up sometimes you actually do see it statistically like people run studies and they'll be like nope yeah he, like there's actually like a delta here so that's i'm kind of curious that's what i'm waiting for is seeing if somebody can you know do a, a controlled experiment mm-hmm. on to another microsoft story you can create your own ai songs with this new copilot extension so there is uh, actually a Cambridge-based AI music startup, Suno, that has created a plugin for Copilot where you can now provide a one or two-line text prompt describing their desired song, and then Suno will then generate the song, uh, usually around one to two minutes long, with the transcript of the lyrics. So this joins some other uh, tools out there. We haven't covered them very much, but there are ones like Soundful, Magenta, SoundRaw, etc. And uh, yeah, it's just goes to show that song generation is having expanded support, and uh, you can do it more and more easily. Yeah, and the need for tool discovery, you know, with all these things popping up more and more. Like, I think one of the biggest skills that's going to be in in demand is just the ability to like be good at sifting through tools quickly and identifying things that you're going to use. Because at this point, you know, it's everywhere. Good to see it's being integrated under one roof here by Microsoft with this broader suite of offerings. But uh, yeah, I mean, just staying on top of like how many different <laughs> music generators and image generators are we, are we tracking? I mean, it's it's pretty wild. By the way, 
you do have to be a paid user of Suno to get commercial rights uh, to the song. Otherwise, you don't. Uh, you can't monetize it. And uh, it's interestingly, Suno does own the rights to any songs generated by free users. So yeah, just FYI, that's probably going to also be standard in these AI tools. Yeah. And last up, actually one more story about image generation. Stability AI announces paid membership for commercial use of its models. So that's the story. Stability AI offers stable diffusion as their kind of big major product for image generation. And now they have three tiers of membership, a free tier for personal and research users use at 20 dollars per month subscription for creators developers and startup or an enterprise plan and as with the last story (laughs) only the pay tier allows commercial use of the outputs of the model yeah it's interesting that we haven't seen um open ai move in that direction quite so much Um, i'm curious what the kind of industry consensus is going to be at the end of the day but this is definitely a reflection of some of the pressure that stability is under right now like we've talked about them before and how their embattled CEO, Ahmad Mostak, is, is sort of like trying to find a way to right the ship now with a bunch of controversy, in particular around how much money they have in the bank. It, it, we covered a story, I think it may have been last week, where Stability is actually looking potentially to get acquired. So there's you know a, a, a desperate need at this point for revenue. And, and you can see them making that trade off in real time. You know, we have this mission around openness, around giving people access to these models, making open source models. But then we also need to make revenue, and what's the variable that we can use to justify charging people enough money to stay afloat? This seems like an interesting play, but uh, you know, gonna gonna have to see how it shakes out. I mean, ultimately, they are in a pretty tight funding spot at this stage, it seems. And speaking of the legality of using model outputs for commercial applications, our next story now in the applications and business section is ByteDance is secretly using OpenAI's tech to build a competitor. So ByteDance... Oh, another flawless segue, I know, Andre. I, oh my I, God. I really oh. nailed that one. I gotta, I gotta give myself some credit there. But yes, uh, ByteDance, the developer of TikTok, has apparently been using uh, OpenAI in the development of competing technology, according to a report from The Verge. Uh, this journalists spoke to employees and uh, saw some documents that basically showcased how for months now, uh, as this tech has been developed, internally at ByteDance, um, the API was used to generate training data and uh, beyond actually. So initially it's seeded with training data. Now ByteDance did save a way removed that, but it, this uh, GPT is still being used to evaluate the model in its development. And this is, of course, in violation of the terms of service of OpenAI. And in fact, as a response to this report, OpenAI has suspended ByteDance's account after it came out that they were, have been using uh, the data to train Uh, some of their own technology. So this is probably happening in a lot of cases, by the way. 100%. Yeah, totally. So it's interesting to see this be kind of maybe the first major news story of this sort of thing happening. 
Well, you know, I was thinking that too, but then haven't we seen basically the same story with X recently, where there there is this debate about is you know is X being trained on OpenAI generated or GPT four generated outputs or whatever? Well, that was yeah, that was similar. More speculative, right? It was yeah, similar. Yeah. We saw it release uh, kind of their model outputs some stuff, but here there were actual documents that sort of yeah. made it crystal clear. Yeah. And and this is really weird for companies of this scale. Like you know, we've seen obviously a bunch of open source sort of academic, um, civil society, nonprofity type groups that put out models like Vicuña and Alpaca and so on. Where yeah, you know, they they train them on uh, GPT four generated outputs, not meant for commercial use, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. For a large scale company to expose itself to risk like legal risk like this is, I think, pretty remarkable. This is all, by the way, in the context of something called project. Project Seed, which is a foundational LLM that ByteDance is developing, uh, uh, supposedly on the path to AGI, by the way, that's the explicit narrative within ByteDance, that they are working their way there. Uh, claims in this article are that like, well, you know, that's what they say, but it really looks like they're just trying to make money. And, and ultimately, this is always what it's going to look like in the era of AI scaling, where getting to AGI just requires money. But, you know, just worth noting, ByteDance is at least supposedly another AGI lab as if we needed another one. Um, but yeah, so there, uh, there's a bunch of really fascinating kind of inside baseball stuff here. One flag, you know, employees apparently are fully aware of not just the fact that this activity is ongoing, but the implications of it. Um, there's this internal kind of communications platform on ByteDance called Lark that employees use. And they were using terms like whitewashing uh, for the, the evidence of what they're doing, like whitewashing the evidence away, and quotes, data sensitize, desensitization to kind of get rid of um, you know, the, the, uh, the clues that they're doing this. And apparently, they've regularly hit their maximum allowance for API access to the, <laughs> to the GPT API. So like they're using this a lot. Um, questions abound about when exactly this practice was put to an end. Supposedly, the company required that they stop doing this um, you know, at, at any stage of model development. A few months ago, that, that's the order that came down uh, to the team from kind of Binance Corporate. And uh, yeah, it, it's really not clear if that's actually happening. Um, it, there's an insider at ByteDance who, who said, and I quote, they say they want to make sure everything is legal, but they really just don't want to get caught. So the the intimation, at least, the allegation is, you know, they're they're very much perhaps continuing this practice. And you know, Microsoft and OpenAI can shut down the ByteDance account on their platform, of course, but they can always spin up new ones. You know, this isn't impossible at all. Uh, so the the question is going to be, you know, how how realistically can you ensure that someone who's looking to violate the OpenAI terms? Um, is actually not going to do it. Uh, that's it's really not clear if there's an answer there for for OpenAI. That's right. And this is uh, another kind of interesting wrinkle here is that you know they, they partially this announcement uh, or decision to stop using the uh, OpenAI data in model development came out because. ByteDance uh, got regulatory approval to uh, release what they have been developing. So there is now actually a chatbot platform called Dobao that they have released. And so seemingly in the development of that product, which is now public and now mainly for users in China, they can go and play with it. Um, yeah, that's, that's public. So you could definitely 
kind of imagine the legal implications of a they released a whole product where the initial tech was supposedly developed with GPT. This could get into a whole legal case that would be really exciting for like the nerdy people listening to this podcast, I guess. Uh, but yeah, anyway, it's it's a pretty fun, spicy story. And again, probably a lot of companies are doing this behind the scenes. Yeah, I was gonna say a word to the nerdy people hosting the podcast, but no, absolutely right. <laughs> and and it, it is a last quick note. I mean, they, they do kind of drop this in the background, but um, so Byte, uh, ByteDance's models are trained on China-based servers. So the U.S. government's ability to intercede um, is is pretty limited here in practice, and this is going to really ultimately come down truly to OpenAI's ability to guard its own API. And next story, starting up on covering hardware, which will be a lot of this section, we have Intel unveils new AI chip to compete with NVIDIA and AMD. So that's the story. This new AI chip, uh, Gaudi 3, is designed for generative AI software and is expected to launch next year. And yeah, as it says, compete with NVIDIA and AMD, who are the two main players in this space. We covered AMD's new chip, the MI300X, that uh, is also kind of a big deal. So yeah, this is pretty much showing how the race and competition is very much heating up. Yeah, so Intel CEO's uh, Intel's CEO rather this guy called uh, Pat Gelsinger. So he's been very uh, focused on pivoting more to the kind of like the the chip fab side of things. And we actually saw an acquisition. I'm trying to remember if this predated him, but uh, an acquisition of a company called Habana Labs uh, that they folded into their company. And the Gaudi chips um, that that they've been building presumably are, are relying a lot on expertise at the former Habana Labs entity. Um, there's not a lot of detail on what actually the specs of Gaudi 3 are going to look like, but it's look, we know a couple things. I mean, it has to c- compete uh, as a piece of, of silicon. It has to compete against NVIDIA's H100, so it's going to have to do pretty well there. Uh, and uh, as well, you know, you mentioned yeah, AMD's MI300X and whatever else comes, comes out next year, right? Because it's going to be shipping to customers in 2024, but... In 2024, we also expect to see more stuff from NVIDIA. In particular, you know, the H200 might be on the horizon on that, you know, on that time span. So what we're starting to see really is a lot more competing hardware. I think a big question is going to be whether Intel can do much in the realm of the software ecosystem to kind of rise to NVIDIA's level, but more and more also AMD's level, because they've been making great strides on software too. Um, you know, the ultimately the the question is going to be. You know, can can you can you justify the switching cost to chips like this and hardware or software rather is a really big part of that equation. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think this is something we're just going to have to learn more about over time. Um, and uh, I'm sure Intel will will release more details as 2024 comes closer. That's right. And uh, another announcement worth mentioning is that as part of their new Core Ultra chips, which are you know CPUs for Windows laptops and PCs, and also their Xeon Zever chips, these include specialized AI components called NPUs, which I assume stands for Neural Processing Units, that can run AI locally. There's an example here where Zoom runs its background blurring feature on the chip, so local AI computing instead of going to a cloud. And that, I think, to me, is kind of interesting because it it ties also into how 
Google is developing Gem- Gemini Nano. Uh, Intel now is is introducing the specialized hardware as like a subcomponent of CPUs. Um, Apple has this already, so I think neural processing as a subcomponent of computing is just gonna be standard. It seems. Absolutely. And I, I think another ingredient to this, right, as they're announcing these new core ultra chips, um, one of the things that, that the story kind of buries at the bottom is, uh, by the way, the, um, uh, the, the chips that uh, Intel is developing are on track to use their seven nanometer process. Um, and it, so just for context, you know, seven nanometer uh, fabrication, this is like, okay, so normally, sorry to back up a bit, you've got chip design, which happens at companies like NVIDIA or AMD. And then those designs get shipped for fabrication to typically Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Co. They basically have a monopoly for all these like very sort of high resolution chips, especially for sort of five and seven nanometer chips. Um, interestingly, what we're seeing here is Intel having in-house its own seven nanometer capability that's now on track to roll out at scale. Um, so that's kind of interesting. It's all part of Intel's strategy to catch up to TSMC by 2026, which is a very, very aggressive timeline, very bold. Uh, the fact that they're able to roll this out suggests, hey, maybe they're you know maybe they're on track for that. And next up, we have our lightning round, starting with Chinese chip-related companies shutting down with record speed, 10,900 or around 30 per day shut down in 2023. That's a long headline, but pretty descriptive. I like the numbers. Um, Yeah, essentially what we've been seeing is in China, you've seen a a gradual kind of increase in shutdowns of these semiconductor companies. Um, These are, by the way, uh, companies that are actually trying to fabricate semiconductors. So not design AI chips, but actually fabricate the chips. So nominally, you know, competing with TSMC, competing with Samsung and other other foundries like Intel. Um, So ever since the US put in sanctions against the semiconductor sector in like the 2020 era, um, yeah, this has just put tremendous pressure on the Chinese ecosystem. And these numbers just seem they seem to me really giant. I mean, when you're looking in the tens of thousands of companies just collapsing and folding. Um, and so this is a, you know, a really big loss of money, in particular government money, because that's been a big source of funding. It's unusual, uh, an unusual feature of the Chinese economy that government views semiconductors as a key strategic asset, and they're funding it actually quite a bit more uh, than, uh, than the US does directly. Of course, the US now has the CHIPS Act, but uh, sort of even with that, um, yeah, so also U.S. restrictions on investments have been a factor here. So you not only have clamping down on the key inputs to semiconductor fabrication through export controls, but you also have restrictions on investment in Chinese companies. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a major challenge. Um, they're also sitting on apparently a whole bunch of unsold stock just because the market is so saturated and the general downturn in the industry due to the kind of wider economic circumstances unfolding in China, and that comes mostly from the collapse of their housing market and general stagnation, uh, just makes for a really bad cocktail. And so, uh, yeah, right now it seems like companies are are paying for their misplanning from back in 2021 20, and 22 when everything seemed so frothy and they produce tons of chips. Well, guess what? Now we have oversupply and prices are going down and companies are closing their doors. That's right, and um, I think developing AI specialized chip tech is is pretty tough, and and getting out of their stuff. So I think 
you know, on the AI side of this, presumably some of these startups would have wanted to compete on the AI chip side. We do have some startups like Cerebras and others that are developing specialized chip architectures and things like that for efficient neural processing and so on. So with a downturn in the whole market, that implicitly means that it's harder for Chinese companies to compete in the AI hardware space, which is as we keep covering over and over, it's super, super pivotal uh, or like a, a really important piece to understand the AI space in general. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And one last quick note too, I, I think it's important to flag, there are a lot of headlines like this that make it seem like there's a very bearish outlook for China's self-reliance on semiconductors. But you got to keep in mind that it doesn't matter when crappy companies shut their doors because they can't compete. What matters is the few companies that do succeed. And that we seem to be seeing with, for example, SMIC, um, which is the kind of domestic Chinese answer to TSMC in Taiwan. So they are seeing success there. It's just that there's this long tail of you know, dying and dead companies, uh, and, and those will fluctuate with the market. But certainly, chi- it, both things can be true. China is making meaningful strides towards semiconductor self-reliance, but also the bulk of their companies are just getting gutted. And continuing with the hardware theme, next story is TSMC mentions 1.4 nanometer process tech for the first time and says that 2 nanometer remains on track. That's the story TSMC, the famous chip fab that we mentioned and referred to many times, including in this episode, uh, has announced this. And that kind of is all there is to it. Uh, This is very important because smaller numbers on nanometers mean more powerful and more efficient chips. Yeah, and and this is another one of those scenarios where we don't have a ton of details about the volumes that... Uh, they're going to be able to produce this 1.4 nanometer node at, um, but they've got already their uh, you know their next level, which is so that we've we've known for a while that the next level is the two nanometer class fabrication process, and we've known from TSMC that that's on track for 2025. So that kind of next level. Um, by the way, what that's really going to do is it's going to free up uh, the next level up, which is the three nanometer node that's currently being used for the iPhone. Well, now the iPhone's probably going to start using that two nanometer node. It'll free up the three nanometer node for use for AI chips. That's usually how this goes. And so essentially three nanometers is going to be the the next level for AI optimized hardware. Um, But this 1.4 nanometer node, we don't seem to have a clear date for it, um, especially for scaled production. But since we're looking at you know 2025, 26, especially for the kind of the next uh, the next node in the uh, two, two nanometer level, it's you know probably towards the end of the the decade, you know, 27, 28, that we'll actually see that 1.4 nanometer node reaching scaled production. Um, so you know you're, you're waiting for a long time for these things to materialize, um, and uh, and a lot of this comes down to the specific technique that TSMC is planning to adopt for this. Um, it's it's a, called a high numerical aperture extreme ultraviolet lithography uh, technique. And um, anyway, numerical aperture, just like from my world of optics back in the day, is is a it's it's a number that tells you how fine a feature size you can uh, sort of like uh, design into your semiconductors. And so uh, really important advances being made there. And those are kind of uh, through waterfall effect, improving the resolution we can get from our semis and therefore the size of our nodes. 
So again, a pretty exciting story if you're like in the nerdy weeds of AI and hardware. <laughs> but yeah, 1.4 nanometer, 2 nanometers, uh, these are big deal developments in, in the tech. And of course, 1.4 nanometers is when we get AGI, because once you get there... Yes, <laughs> everybody knows that sub that's That's the limit now. No, no. And continuing with hardware, we have the next story from TechRadar with a fun title, Meta has done something that will get NVIDIA and AMD very worried. It gave up on GPU and CPU to take a risky route for <laughs> AI training interface. Ah, what a nice spawn. So this is about Risk V technology, which is an open source alternative to the 80, x86 architecture used by Intel and AMD. And apparently Meta has announced plans to begin mass development of hardware based on this Risk V technology, thus the risky route. Uh, and uh, as it is open source alternative, yeah, this is worrying for NVIDIA and AMD because potentially Meta could just make its own hardware and stop shelling out big bucks to uh, these other companies. Yeah, and specifically, so we're not necessarily talking about the design of the hardware or the manufacturing of it. Um, so when we talk about, uh, so risk, risk is an alternative to something called a, an instruction set architecture. Um, this is a thing that, that ARM uh, is really good at doing. So instruction set architectures are basically the thing that connect the, the hardware itself, like they, they give the actual like machine level instructions to the hardware based on higher level, more abstract and easy to understand instructions that humans might write up in code. So you can think of this as the translation barrier, the sort of the interface between the hardware and the software. And you actually have to license this normally and pay you know, grotesque amounts of money to a lot of these firms. And there's been an active effort in the industry to move away from this, including from giant players like Alibaba or, or Qualcomm that have really tried to get away from, from ARM, which is just dominating the instruction set arch architecture ISA uh, ecosystem. And so now, you know, it's, it's sort of like, you can think of it as the same way that everybody's trying to get away from NVIDIA's dominance on chip design and trying to fund alternatives like AMD, like in Intel. Uh, well, now we're sort of seeing the same thing, but for instruction set architectures, which is this oddly niche sounding thing that's actually super, super important because without that communication barrier between the software and the hardware, like you're kind of screwed. And so the thing about RISC-V, as you said, Andre, is it's this open source, this free to use alternative. Um, this is very compatible, by the way, with Meta's like overall open source ideology, right? This is something that they've espoused with AI models. They want to put out their AI models into the world as open source software. Um, so not, not too surprising that they're moving particularly in this direction. Uh, but this is the sort of move that you make only after a really long time thinking deeply about you know, what makes sense for your business model. In this case, apparently four years of planning at Meta have led to this. It's not like it's a snap decision, um, but it certainly is something that I think is going to be very important for this, this uh, whole ecosystem in validating the RISC-V um, uh, sort of uh, uh, toolkit and getting more attention on it so it'll probably improve even faster. So th there's a lot of reasons buried in this article about the specific you know, hardware stuff that Meta is trying to pull off. I think it's actually quite interesting and important, but for a lightning round, maybe we can leave it at that. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. And actually go back to TSMC with our next story, which is that NVIDIA rushes to deliver modified AI uh, GPU chips to China customers and places a super hot run priority order with TSMC. Uh, so yeah, it's 
you know, NVIDIA has pretty much rush ordered uh, reproduction and fabrication of these chips, seemingly because they need to produce this modified hardware to put it on the Chinese market for these chips that are like in spec for US export restrictions. Yeah, this is a really interesting move, and it's not super, super clear why it's happening. We've covered this before, but of course, NVIDIA is now unable to sell their top-of-the-line you know, H100 and eventual H200 and, and so on GPUs to China. And so what do they do? Well, they take that silicon, and they do what are called cut-downs. They basically find ways to kind of weaken the, the power of those uh, processors. Sometimes that means like changes to the, the microcode of the GPU. Sometimes it actually means blowing fuses within the GPU strategically. But the idea is to weaken them so that they can then pass through export control sanctions. Um, and then they have these special product lines specifically for that. So the H20, the L20, and the L2, all of them basically use existing silicon, so existing chips, um, and then pair them down in this way for export. And, and the big question here is like, why is NVIDIA all of a sudden putting in a super hot run, which I'll be honest, I never knew this was a thing. It sounds really sexy. And, but and like, by the way, just so we are clear, this is coming from <laughs> an unofficial source. Uh, so this is yes. you know, not factually confirmed based on a year. It's, it's been covered by some sources. Uh, yeah, good good caveat. It's super sexy, unofficial source gossip. Uh, super hot run, unofficial. <laughs> Sorry. All right, I'm going to calm down. Um, <laughs> it's too, too steamy, too steamy for the podcast. Uh, anyway, so big question here is like, if this is happening, to your point, Andre, absolutely, if this is happening, a uh, big question is you know, why? And there's uh, you know possibility that part of this is just that they might have altered their process of, of doing these cutdowns to speed up their production or lower costs. And so they're like, okay, great. You know, now we can justify um, you know, like going into production at higher scales with this sort of thing. Um, but also possible that just like NVIDIA has you know, billions of dollars of pre-purchased capacity, fabrication capacity that they actually put on lock at TSMC. This is one of the, the things they're actually famous for, one of the things that counts for their success. Um, and so this actually kind of makes it weird um, like it makes it seem strange. Like, why would they place an urgent order at all if they already have this like pre-purchased capacity? So yeah, there's a lot of confusion about why this is happening. Um, it just seems like a, a strange sort of convulsive fit of ordering a lot of semiconductors. And one last story for this section. Sam Altman's OpenAI agrees to pay German media giant Axel Springer for using its content to train AI models. So Axel Springer is this giant media conglomerate which owns a lot of uh, primarily kind of journalistic uh, media like Politico and Business Insider. And this is one of the first deals that we know of where you know, an AI company like OpenAI is paying a media company like Axel Springer uh, to be able to access uh, their content to train the AI models. We don't know the, de the details of the deal. We just know what has happened. Uh, the Associated Press also has a similar deal with OpenAI. Uh, so yeah, I guess uh, this is another part of a new normal we can expect with training data for these giant models. Yeah, Axel Springer is kind of positioning itself to be the Grimes of journalism. Let me try to explain that analogy for a second. So Grimes was famously like, hey, everybody wants to, like, all these artists want to prevent you from using their, their shit to 
train your models. I welcome it. Just make sure I get a cut. That was kind of her position. And so um, Axel seems to be, or Axel Springer seems to be positioning itself in a sort of similar way. And it's saying, look, there are a ton of lawsuits against OpenAI and also other companies now. So we're going to take a different approach. And their CEO kind of signaled this idea that it's about, you know, making journalism survive essentially like we're, we're not going to just fizzle away and become outdated uh, we need to do away with the old ways and actually embrace the sort of like ai thing and hopefully uh his view was by getting additional revenue from open ai by licensing um uh, having open ai license their content in this way maybe it'll make room for them to do more actual investigative journalism you know more stuff that the ai can't do that's at least the theory of the case here um, so that you know, it'll be interesting to see if that uh, thesis survives the next five years, or if AI just becomes a better investigative journalist than than us as well. But um, yeah, really interesting story and an interesting. You know, we, we've talked about regulatory moats and and whether licensing regimes for companies like OpenAI or attempts to do regulatory capture. Well, you look at this, and it's like if 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 we have a, live in a world where uh, you know these uh, big scalers like companies like OpenAI. Um, are required to purchase licenses for this sort of content, then it makes it much more difficult, doesn't it, for smaller companies to build their own models and compete because they would have to buy licenses for Axel Springer's content, for example, as well. And so this is a, it's an interesting question. Like, are we seeing the beginning of a different kind of regulatory moat? Uh, I think it's definitely going to be one of those things we want to track and, and the policymakers ought to be looking at too. And on to the projects and open source section, where we have a, just a couple of stories. The first one is introducing Desi LM 7B, the fastest and most accurate 7 billion parameter LLM to date. This is coming from the company Desi, and uh, that's the story. They have released this new 7 billion parameter model. 7 billion is one of the smaller sizes that is popular for large language models and chatbots. Uh, this is uh, being open sourced under the Apache 2.0 license. So pretty much you know, as open source or almost as open source as you can get, you can use it commercially and so on. And they do make a lot of claims here with regards to the performance of it being the fastest and best model of this kind. It can take up to 2,000 uh, tokens, or at least is, is evaluated on these things and shows that it has 1.7 uh, times higher throughput uh, and actually surpasses Llama 2. Wait. Oh. And is is also better than Llama 2 7B by quite a bit uh, on this sort of stuff. Uh, they, yeah, lots of numbers in this blog post. Uh, it says speeds of 4.4 uh, times faster than Mistral 7B with their VLLM. Uh, component uh, so just yeah another 7 billion model that is better than what we've had before which has been a kind of a trend of smaller models getting better and better we just covered that same kind of thing last week and also faster and cheaper well and, and to your point right last week we talked about the latest instance in Mistral's kind of product line which is the Mixtral model a sort of mixture of experts based thing um, that is, I don't think they actually have a 7 billion parameter, but I think it was like 40 odd billion parameters. So I was, I was going to say, you know, well, yeah, but how does it compare to that? Phi, phi 2, though. 
uh, Microsoft, Fly two, yeah. yeah, which was, uh, yeah, last week, just to recap a little bit, Microsoft made us an announcement of uh, here's a more performant small model. Well, now here's Desi kind of saying the same thing. Yeah, and, and it's not, I don't see a Phi 2 comparison here. Um, so that just goes to show you how fast these things are coming out. You know, you 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 make your model, you make a splash for maybe three days, and then somebody else comes out and says, hey, we have an open source model that does even better along these dimensions. Um, sort of raises the question. I mean, I've, I've asked this before. I'm, I'm honestly confused. Um, I still haven't figured out the economics behind open sourcing uh, new, more powerful, for example, 7 billion parameter LLMs in a context where it seems like there's so much interest in making these models that your, you know, your, your shelf life for your model, you know, the, the lifetime over which is actually relevant on the market is, is going to be just ridiculously short. Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of curious to see if, if we start to see an attrition in the you know, rate at which we're pumping out these new kind of small models in the open source, just because there's less alpha there. There's just so much competition. It's really unclear, you know, what to pick and and you know and all that. So uh, one kind of interesting thing, you know, they, they flag in their um, uh, architecture here. They're they're actually using as part of the training process neural architecture search, which is kind of cool. So this idea of using a neural network to search for um, kind of architecture structures for the neural network you're actually training. So um, essentially, rather than having a human being just design the architecture all on their own, using some kind of automated process to search for architectures, not just parameter values, so not just the weights in the network that are being tuned, but also the structure of the network as a whole, the architecture behind it. It's kind of cool. Um, and apparently, uh, they claim really big leap in, in particular in inference uh, speed. So that's one of the axes that we see people competing on a lot here, like cheaper inference, right? Cheaper outputs. Um, it'll it'll cost a lot less to get your uh, your text predictions. But um, yeah, interesting development. And again, I'm, I'm really curious about the economic story here as it plays out over the next few months. Yeah, more and more, it seems that the models themselves are not what you're buying. It's the compute and the you know optimized mm -hmm. serving and deployment. So in this yeah. blog post, they you know push their and very LLM product uh, quite a bit and say that you know combining in LLM with DCLM seven B is uh, the best way to do it. Uh, similarly, we had Together last week announced they're serving up Nixdraw's open source model at the cheapest possible rate. So it seems that, yeah, there is a bit of an emerging story here of open source models just being here and being good and competition being in who can provide them for the cheapest and fastest on their compute platform. Never a good sign for, uh, for industry profitability, but good for uh, end use customers. And the second and last story in this section comes from Stable AI, introducing Stable 0123, quality 3D object generation from single images. So there we go. Stability AI has delved into yet another modality, right? They generate audio, they generate images, and now they generate 3D models. This, uh, yeah, is, is building on the 0123 kind of architecture broadly speaking i think we might have covered that paper or related papers and they have some results showing you know their model is really good so they they trained this architecture to produce really really nice 3d models at least in the examples they have given and uh yeah it's available for non-commercial research 
purposes. You can download it on Hugging Face as with a lot of these open source models. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, they list a couple of the key innovations that have led to this breakthrough. And by the way, I mean, it, it, it does look pretty cool. They have, uh, when you land on their website here, a little little animation of a, I don't know what to call that, like a pirate with a skull body and it's dancing. And it, anyway, you know, it's three-dimensional. It's cool. Um, the point is that this thing's been trained with a couple of innovations, uh, one of which is apparently a more heavily filtered uh, data set that is designed just to preserve only high quality 3D objects. And uh, this is kind of interesting. You know, you usually see a trend in the space towards like more data volume and perhaps less emphasis on data quality, especially, especially I will say with language models. This is less true for other modalities. So kind of interesting, you know, slight counterexample here where maybe more emphasis on quality, um, particularly given that we're talking about just like, I guess, pre-training is what they're intimating here. They just say training, but I think pre-training. Um, and then uh, they're also saying that they provide the model with an estimated camera angle as a key input during the training and inference process. And so that apparently just allows it to make, you know, I guess, as you might imagine, more informed and higher quality predictions. Um, but uh, yeah, it's kind of cool, you know, finding those little hacks. What, what information do you actually have to specify explicitly? Uh, you know, usually models like this would tend to learn in some implicit way, the camera angle, but what you're really doing is you're kind of saving it all the compute that would go into learning that and, uh, and just letting it focus on other stuff, which in this case is the actual 3D rendering that you're after. So kind of an interesting, uh, interesting little development here. That's right. And uh, once again, you know, this is, we can't, we, maybe we should just go to video. This is really annoying where we have so many uh, <laughs> modalities of video and text. But uh, broadly speaking, right, these uh, 3D models now are still at a place where you can tell they're AI generated, broadly speaking. They still have yeah. some weirdness to them and some kind of quirks, but they are getting pretty dang good. So this is... Uh, Kind of one of the stories of this year is improving 3D generation, and probably next year we can get to a point where this stuff will start impacting industry. And moving on to research and advancements, and we open with a big new splashy announcement from Google DeepMind, FunSearch, making new discoveries in mathematical sciences using large language models. So big, big question right at the heart of uh, AI really, of language modeling in particular though, is how much can language models actually innovate? How much can they come up with new ideas? And how much jiggery-pokery do you have to do to get them to do it? You know, is it possible? And so this is all about a new al algorithm, a new breakthrough called FunSearch that actually kind of does just that. So its whole way of operating is to generate new pieces of computer code um, based on a prompt, based on some specification, and then it has an evaluator that automatically like looks at those proposed solutions and tests them, actually tests them on the problem at hand. And the ones that work well get added to a database of programs. And then in a looped fashion, the system then goes to that database and picks out some of those programs that were selected, uses them to populate a prompt. So basically it kind of highlights like, hey, you know, Imagine you had like uh, 20 different solutions uh, to, uh, to previous problems, and now you're confronted with a new problem. You kind of have the opportunity to look at your past solutions and go like, hmm, you know, which ones seem most relevant here? Which ones have bits of logic that I think I could reuse or, or draw inspiration from? And so it's essentially drawing from that database to pull out those most relevant programs that it had previously collected, 
put them in a prompt, and then rerun the LLM process to basically build off what it's learned. And I think one of the really interesting aspects of this, you know, anytime you want to look at a looped structure like this, where the LLM is basically like chewing its own tail or eating its own tail, there's a fundamental question about, you know, in order for this process to get better, to lead to improvements over time, there has to be an injection of fresh information into this process at some point, right? You can't just have an LLM talk to itself indefinitely and then, you know, invent, you know, Einsteinian gravity or something. If you want to make fundamental discoveries, there has to be some sort of source of ground truth or, or new fresh information that gets injected in this process. And really, in this case, it seems to be the evaluation stage. So it's it's the point where the LLM generates its potential solutions, they get evaluated and you have some ground truth that comes in and says, yeah, you know what, that solution worked, let's add it to the set of programs. That's really an additional piece of crucial data that's being injected. And, and that seems to be a big part of the magic here. Um, so a couple of really impressive outputs, like what do you get when you, when you try this scheme? Well, for one, uh, you get really interesting new solutions to classic problems in computer science or in logic, depending on how you think about them, or in math, um, one of which is this bin packing problem, which is this issue where you imagine you have items of different sizes, and you want to put them into containers or, or bins, and each of those bins has a fixed given capacity. So your goal is to use as few of those bins as possible. Right, so you can think about the applications of this that you know might include things like if you're loading containers with items, right? That's very much that sort of thing, or even allocating co compute jobs to data centers, right, to minimize costs. Like if you have data centers with a fixed capacity, you're really doing the bin packing problem. You're trying to solve that there. So this is actually a very valuable problem as well. Um, it's uh, it, one of the the beautiful side effects of this whole process too is the the programs you get because this is being generated by an LLM the solutions you get are very legible. So you can actually go in and kind of understand the logic behind the solutions that have been constructed uh, rather than just what the solutions are. And um, so, yeah, anyway, just a lot of really, really cool cool stuff coming out of this, this paper and um, a major innovation. And I do think it's a big... Uh, you know, arrow in the quiver of people arguing for AGI perhaps coming soon, because for a lot of people, I, the, the, you know, I've had many conversations where for them, the goalpost that matters is like, when will AI rather be able to make novel contributions to fields like math? Well, it's done now. So are you going to shift that goalpost? You know, like we kind of have that, have to have that conversation. Um, everyone's got different, you know, different key things they're looking for, but certainly uh, there's a lot of, uh, I think a lot of signal coming from this that maybe we figured out more than we think on the LLM front. That's right. And to provide a bit of context, like fundamentally the idea of this isn't novel, right? This is just evolutionary optimization. You know, you have a solution, you tweak it by some means, you evaluate it and you keep doing that. And the novelty is in using a large language model for that. That also isn't novel. Actually, they cite a paper from June of 2022, Evolution Through Large Models, that actually came from OpenAI, where they developed open, uh, where they developed Python uh, programs, also with something similar, not quite the same, but Evolution Through uh, Large Models in general. So broadly speaking, the idea, the approach isn't anything too exciting. It's more that they were able to get it to work and, and did show an improvement on this one math problem, where basically they improved beyond an existing bound. I will say, you know, my take is it should be kind of 
you should be careful how much you take away from this because as you said this does only apply to problems where you can easily evaluate a solution cheaply and this also applies to problems where you can have you know a program you can kind of uh, make tweaks to and the tweaks will somehow result in potentially better solutions so there are some kind of limitations uh, as to where you can apply this sort of strategy uh, in general. Uh, and so you can do what they do here, which is improve on an existing bound on some problem, things like that, but they haven't fundamentally discovered a new theorem or a new kind of scientific fact. It's more that they have improved some uh, proof or, or a strategy, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think this is where, you know, it's interesting, because I think we have different perspectives on how to read this. Like, one of them is, oh, I'll mention too, I, sorry, I mentioned the bin packing problem. That's just one of two um, sort of longstanding math areas where it made significant advances. The other one being the cap set problem, which, anyway, we won't go into the details of, but it's a, an old math problem that's also really important. Um, to me, it's actually the very fact that, um, A, there's nothing new under the sun here. Like this is a set of old ideas that we just figured out how to make work. And so in other words, there was latent in our pre-existing theories, all of this potential. Um, there's also this question of like, as you, you're, you're right that this is basically constrained to um, solving problems where you have a clear signal of like, have you, you know, derived a correct solution or not? Um, but this is precisely the argument that people make about you know, the, the one thing that these systems are not able to do is kind of follow logical reasoning chains and, and reason in these very objective ways. What we seem to have here is a training protocol that allows these models to learn embedded logic in a deep way. And if you can do that in much the same way as we saw when we talked about the QSTAR developments at OpenAI, um, there's, a I think, a pretty credible case that like you then combine the context, the world knowledge of language models with uh, reasoning ability that's grounded in these kinds of problem-solving training loops, and you effectively get like as you know at least much closer to AGI. And I think for just because I've had conversations with people where this specifically is like their you know their magic threshold for some reason, this is the thing that will convince them. Um, it's, I'm, I'm just very interested to, to revisit some of those conversations and see like what am I missing? Because there's always an interesting counterargument. Uh, there's always more room for discussion. I'm just really curious like where this ends up going and and what conclusions we will be drawing, let's say, as the dust settles over the next couple of months about you know, what does this mean for AGI progress? And speaking of AGI progress, next story <laughs> is OpenAI demos a control method for super intelligent AI. So this is about the paper, weak to strong generalization, eliciting strong capabilities with weak supervision. It's coming out of a super alignment program of OpenAI, which is devoted to trying to understand how we can control super human intelligent AI. And the basic idea of this uh, paper is what if you take a weak AI model, like not a very smart AI model, like GPT-2, and have that be the source of training for some task you want to achieve for a stronger model like GPT-4, right? And the basic story is, you know, they show that on a few tasks, GPT-2 was able to train GPT-4, and GPT-4 did pretty well 
it did you know GPT three point five ish level, um, and potentially what that means is we can use a weak non super intelligent kind of uh, model or AI to then have a super intelligent AI learn to do something in a way that maybe we can control and is is pretty good without kind of GPT four training itself and uh, doing something we cannot comprehend at all. At least that's my reading. But actually, the implications of this is uh, somewhat interesting on, on what exactly we should take away from this, I think. Yeah, it's it's really comes down to this question of like what you think the hard part of aligning these systems is going to be. Um, this is OpenAI basically saying, hey, we think like one key hard part is just going to be to elicit the capabilities of the larger, more powerful system, the system that's smarter than us. And yeah, can, can we get essentially, as they do, GPT-3 level performance out of, um, well, let's say, can we get GPT-2 to give GPT-4 instructions and get it to behave ultimately at least like something like intermediate, like GPT-3 level, which is roughly what they find. Um, in other words, GPT-4 is smart enough that it can kind of figure out what GPT-2 wants and use some of its more expanded capabilities to push forward the objective that GPT-2 had in a more effective way. And, and what they find somewhat surprisingly is, you know, this, this actually like does decently well. So if you fine tune, specifically what this means, if you fine tune GPT-4, on rewards generated by GPT-2. So this is through reinforcement learning from human feedback, but the details don't super matter. Basically, fine-tune GPT-4 to follow objectives that GPT-2 gave it, um, you will find that it ends up performing around GPT-3 level. So that's actually good. Um, the challenge that they find is that this does not work as well as if you just trained or fine-tuned GPT-4 on ground truth rather than the kind of labels generated by GPT-2. Now, perhaps that's not surprising, right? GPT-2 is going to make a lot of mistakes, and you would expect GPT-4 to actually learn to replicate those mistakes, which in fact is what it turns out happens. Um, but it, it does suggest that, you know, there's there's a maybe a bit of a there there. Uh, they find a bunch of techniques that allow them to squeeze even more kind of um, the juice out of the lemon here. Uh, one of the techniques that they use is, is introducing what they call an auxiliary loss and sorry, I just need to flip to. Yeah, um, one of the techniques that they introduce here to do that is called auxiliary confidence loss. And um, essentially, what they are trying to mitigate there is the risk that the strong model, GPT 4 in this case, just learns to imitate the errors of the, the weaker model. And so, what they end up doing is adding a term to the, the loss function, basically the objective that the GPT-4 is trying to achieve that causes GPT-4 to take itself and, and its opinions a little more seriously. So it doesn't fully defer to GPT-2 on all these things. If, you know, if it has a strong sense that, eh, you know, GPT-2's label is not quite right, then it will defer a little bit to itself um, and have confidence in itself. That's what's being hinted at in this, this term, auxiliary confidence loss. And that leads to a really big improvement um, in some cases. And that's one of the things that they highlight. Ultimately, all of these techniques, and they have a bunch of different like bootstrapping techniques to make this work better, 
they tend to be very domain specific. So they'll work on, you know, if you're trying to get GPT-4 to play chess better, okay, you know, one set of techniques might work. But if you're trying to get it to like generate natural language better, then uh, another set of techniques will work. And this is part of the squishy challenge of alignment. We don't have a kind of robust scientific theory of the case about what alignment techniques will and won't work. And, you know, it, I think, first of all, I think this is a really great paper. I think it's it's good that they're making progress in this direction. But I think it is worth noting that this line of effort fails to engage with a lot of the things that are likely to make alignment really hard. In particular, what they're focusing on right now is a part of the alignment problem that has to do with specifying safe goals, like trying to make sure that we can you know, get very powerful systems to follow our uh, instructions in safe ways um, and, and by giving them goals that are safe to pursue. There's a separate question of the larger model itself actually behaving adversarially relative to us because it's internalized goals that are incompatible with ours. And that's called inner alignment failure. Basically, when you train a model on an objective, but the objective that it internalizes is actually different from the one that you think you trained it on. We've talked about that in previous episodes. Um, so anyway, bottom line is this deals with a slice of the pie, uh, not the whole pie. And uh, it's I think it's an important slice of the pie, but we kind of need to keep in mind that there are a lot of different aspects to the alignment problem, not all of which are being addressed here. That's right. Yeah. Personally, I'm a little underwhelmed, uh, let's say, in terms of how this relates to alignment, but still some interesting results. And it, it is a nice academic paper, so it's nice to see uh, OpenAI still, as per their alignment team, doing academic research similar to Anthropic. And before we move on, it is worth mentioning that alongside this research paper, they also announced super alignment fast grants. They are offering grants that range between 100K to $2 million for academic labs, nonprofits, and individual researchers to uh, do research. And that involves money and also uh, like cash money and also compute uh, funding. And uh, yeah, you can apply now. They list a few particular research directions like this weak to strong generalization, but also interoperability, scalable oversights, and many other things. So yeah, $10 million total in this grant program. So you know they are, I guess, definitely uh, pushing forward on still being committed to alignment and safety as part of their mission. Moving on to our lightning round, we have cheating fears over chatbots were overblown, new research by chatbots suggests. Uh, wait, actually, no, new research suggests, sorry. Um, so anyway, uh, essentially, this is a new piece of research that is looking into how often college students use AI chatbots for cheating. Um, it's from Stanford. So hey, Andre, some of your, some of your buddies at Stanford. And um, they looked at high school students in particular, and it turned out that 12 to 28% of those admitted to using an AI tool or a digital device as an unauthorized aid during a school test, assignment, or homework, which is kind of interesting, at least for a test, because I feel like you'd need to whip out your phone or have something like that. Um, but apparently, of those students, so of the students who actually cheated, uh, between 55 and 77% used AI to generate an idea for a paper or a project, and then 19 to 49% used it to edit or complete a portion of a paper. A, sp a smaller number, still like you know around 10-ish percent, uh, used it to write the entire paper or assignment. Um, you know, kind of 
interesting to be drawing uh, conclusions from this, especially given that we're just like asking high school students to be honest about cheating. Uh, but you know, man, maybe some there there to some of these numbers. That's right. Yeah, this you know obviously you can't necessarily generalize this too much, but at the same time, I think this does point to not everyone is just making their homework uh, with uh, with chatbots now. Next paper is Switchhead Accelerating Transformers with Mixture of Experts' Attention. So they present a novel method that reduces both the compute and memory acquire requirements of running language models with mixture of experts' layers in a kind of special way uh, that requires less compute than standard transformers, and it can be combined with other mixture of experts techniques in what they call the fully mixture of experts switch head transformer model that then is uh, really good in terms of being able to uh, use way less computation and, and still be very performant. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to call out... So so one of the, the key things they're looking at is as well... Uh, the comparison with classical attention mechanisms, which are, are quadratic in sequence length, um, which, you know, I mean, it, it, it's sort of the cost, by the way, of running those uh, require compute that like scales as the square of the sequence length. So as you increase the length of the prompt that you want the model to be able to take in, like very quickly, the costs go up very fast. Um, th this is... I think true and, and also kind of um, less true now because we have techniques like flash attention um, and others that are now sort of changing that calculus a bit. But um, uh, it definitely is another instance of people trying to focus on the cost dimension. We've talked about that a lot today. Uh, this is the theoretical end of that. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're going to see more research along this dimension. Ultimately, we have to see you know how, how easy are these things to implement. That becomes a really important factor. Um, in determining whether we actually see this used for the next generation, say, of, of open source models. Um, so remains to be seen. Next paper is Cog Agent, a visual language model for GUI agents. And that's what they present, Cog Agent. This is an 18 billion parameter visual language model, VLM, which is actually a, a pretty well-used uh, acronym that uh, I guess we haven't mentioned. But anyway, they introduce this COG agent that can use GUI uh, applications. And uh, it can yeah interact with Google. It can use your phone and, and so on. And uh, yeah, they train it in kind of a special architecture that takes an image and takes an input uh, instruction of a task. And then the visual language decoder can uh, yeah use the GUI essentially to achieve various things, and I think you know this is one of these things that uh, likely we're going to see more of uh, next year as far as uh, you know chatbots that people interact with, where they can use uh, programs not just output text. And finally, we have limits to the efficiency of CMOS microprocessors. Okay, this is really in the weeds, and the actual take-homes for our purposes are going to be really short and sweet. Um, but the only thing you really need to know is that um, as of, I mean, as of today, like virtually all uh, chips, all AI hardware chips, are fabricated using this technology called CMOS technology. Um, it has a bunch of really nice characteristics that like lends itself to low power consumption, uh, low, low static power consumption, when it's not actually like being used. 
uh, for gating things and, and then um, low, uh, yeah, sorry, high immunity to noise too. Um, okay, bottom line is uh, that, shit, sorry, now my brain just completely drew a blank. One sec. Uh, oh yeah, right, right, okay. So there is a fundamental question about how far this current generation, this current paradigm, I should say, for AI hardware is going to allow us to keep improving our AI hardware, right? So like, how far will CMOS technology allow us to go? And what are the fundamental limits to it? And there are a couple of, <clears throat> of, of factors that create upper bounds to the energy efficiency of these processors that just like make them unworkable above a certain scale. Um, these have to do with usually um, en like energy dissipation, um, especially like through interconnect. So through the, the connections between chips, which are so critical for making very scaled training runs that have many chips. Um, and uh, anyway, so, so there's a bunch of stuff, really interesting stuff that they, that they work on and, and discuss here. But the, ultimately the conclusion is it's likely that um, the training runs over, and, and this is according to Epic AI, by the way, which is a really great source on this stuff. We've covered some of their stuff in the past, but it's likely that current CMOS strategies are going to allow training runs of up to 10 to the 35 flops. So, so for context, GPT-4 uh, was trained with 10 to the 26 flops. So we're talking here about like about a factor of a billion more in compute uh, that we're going to be able to squeeze out of the, the current technology. Um, there's... I mean, there's different ways to look at this, but uh, they have a, a model that goes into more detail. They think probably 50% odds that they'll see a, about a 200 times improvement over the energy efficiency of the NVIDIA H100. So energy efficiency is going to be capped at about 200x, um, but in practice, for various economic reasons, uh, we probably still have a ways to go in terms of the, the scale that we'll be able to reach for these training runs. And so this really does us till, like, you know, the, like, pretty much the end of the decade, um, by which time you can expect other technologies to take over from CMOS. So this probably won't be a long-term uh, rate limiter. And I think that's an interesting thing for people to note, You know, for from the standpoint of compute being a, a bottleneck to AGI, it seems like plausibly we have a, a clean shot at continuing this particular gravy train that we're on right now. Yeah, at least until we get to AGI, right? At least until we get to AGI. <laughs> And moving on to policy and safety, with the first story again going to OpenAI, with OpenAI announces preparedness framework to track and mitigate AI risks. So OpenAI actually has a couple models working on safety. The super alignment team is focused on super intelligent models, as we covered in the previous section. They also have a preparedness teams, which is covering frontier models, which is essentially the most powerful models we have today and that are emerging currently. And so this particular team had announced this development of kind of the beta version of their approach to preparedness and safety with regards to things like GPT-4 and, you know, the stuff that comes right after GPT-4 is this preparedness framework. And essentially, their approach is based on kind of a scorecard where they are concerned with particular themes of cybersecurity, uh, persuasion, model autonomy, things like that. And they uh, plan to uh, basically score models as they get trained on these particular uh, 
topics and see how safe is it with regards to cybersecurity, with regards to uh, being able to do things on its own, things like that. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of still early on. This is uh, so-called beta. <laughs> and they, in addition to announcing on their site, they released a kind of pretty detailed little white paper, 20-odd pages uh, roughly of specifics as to what they'll measure and how they'll evaluate the uh, kind of, I guess, risk with regards to each one of these uh categories of cybersecurity, persuasion, model autonomy, and even unknown unknowns. Yeah, I think this is actually a really interesting document. Um, It is probably best compared to Anthropic's responsible scaling policies document, right, where they outlined, you know, at what point do we, for example, just like stop scaling our AI systems because the risks are just too high? At what point do we stop deploying our AI systems? So, you know, there's a question of, do we Keep training. Like there's a risk level where even training models at that level of capability is dangerous. So like, what is that? Uh, what's the risk level at which you will just not deploy? So that's uh, the next level. Then the next level after that is like, okay, what's the highest risk level you're willing to actually deploy and and kind of submit for uh, average users to interact with? And that's really what they're figuring out here. And what they're doing is they're breaking up that analysis as between sort of like low risk and medium risk, which they're both comfortable um, publishing out into the world for people to use, and then high, high risk, which they're okay training, but they're not comf- they're, they're saying we're not going to deploy that. Um, and then this extra category that they call critical risk, which is basically a no-go zone, don't even deploy, sorry, don't even train these sorts of models. And for each of these uh, risk levels, they're, they're going to assign a risk level to each of the the risk categories that they're tracking. So Andre, you just mentioned those, right? So cybersecurity is one, uh, model autonomy. This is stuff like self-replication, alignment failure, power seeking, that sort of thing. Um, So CBRN, which by the way, usually this is pronounced CBRN. It stands for Chem Bio Rad Nuke. This is the standard uh, weapons of mass destruction portfolio that national security agencies tend to worry a lot about. Um, They're running tests on that. And then also persuasion, which... Uh, I think it's really interesting, you know, when I talk to folks in the AI safety community, there's a big question about whether persuasion is actually the right thing to be looking at, because in principle, we actually do want our models to be persuasive, right? We want them to convince us of truths that are true. Um, So people often argue that this should be deception. Um, But in any case, OpenAI seems to have gone with persuasion. This is a living document, so that may actually change over time for that or other reasons. Um, but it's it's really interesting that they've they've j- chosen to kind of split the risk up into those categories and separately score each category as either low, medium, high, or critical risk, indicating whether again they're willing to train, deploy, uh, or not those those models. Um, the reasoning for splitting things up that way is basically that sometimes uh, you just you need to evaluate along those independent axes because a model might be really dangerous along one but look safe along the others. And if you just kind of aggregate those together, you'll be letting a dangerous system out into the wild. Um, there are a bunch of other interesting reasons too. But just to give you a, a quick bit of uh, a flavor here uh, for what they're looking at, you know, when they look at Seaburn, so again, chem bio rad nuke risk, they're thinking of high risk. In other words, a risk that's high enough that they will not deploy this, but they will train it. Uh, these are models that enable an expert to develop a novel threat vector. Keep in mind, that literally means a novel threat vector analogous to chemical, bio, radiological, or nuclear weapons. That is a high, high level of risk. Um, or the model provides meaningfully improved assistance that enables anyone with basic training 
to be able to create a C-burn threat. So that they're comfortable training that and having it sit on their servers. That to me, that implies like they better be really confident in their cybersecurity because nation-state actors will be trying to acquire those sorts of technologies as a priority. So you know the the, the bar has got to be super high. Uh, then in critical, they say models that enable an expert to develop a novel threat vector or models that provide meaningfully improved assistance that enable anyone with basic training to be able to create a seaburn threat. So basically, it's just unacceptable to even train if it's way too easy to invent a new threat vector. Um, they also have this, I like this, they have this category they flag as unknown unknowns. So outside the you know, seaburn, cyber, blah, 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 they're also just like new capabilities that we can't predict. And um, they have a whole, anyway, whole governance protocol that involves uh, the CEO of the company being able to make the call as to whether a particular system kind of is you know medium or high risk, make that executive decision. But then also the board can overrule the CEO, which is particularly interesting in light of some of the discussions that we've had on the podcast uh, and that you've probably heard of in other, from other places about OpenAI's board being reshuffled, uh, potentially to be more accelerationist in its orientation. So there's a lot going on here, a lot of governance stuff, a lot of technical safety stuff. Um, I think it's great that they're being transparent about this. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's... Uh, it's it's a pretty pretty kind of uh, controversial topic and hard to know where to place those those thresholds of release and and training. That's right. So it's uh, I would say you know a pretty major piece of news when it comes to AI safety and OpenAI uh, and and their kind of work on the field. This is providing a lot of details as to for present day AI that we have. How are they going to responsibly develop it and scale it and so on while, I guess, not trying to f cross a threshold that would be dangerous? And this explicitly sets up thresholds in these categories uh, and you know has metrics and so on. So yeah, very cool to see them uh, releasing this and, and joining Anthropic with having kind of a a known policy and framework that others can take inspiration from and, and I guess just be aware of. Next story is pro-China YouTube network used AI to malign US report finds. So that's the story coming from a report from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Uh, yeah, apparently there's a network of at least 30 channels which has posted over 4,500 videos and drew nearly 120 million views. Uh, and this network uh, is seemingly uh, meant to influence global opinion in favor of China and against the United States. And in these videos, there is uh, yeah, some use of AI. It seems that the way AI is used varies. So there are generated AI-generated avatars. Uh, in 39 of the videos, there were 10 artificially generated avatars. Uh, there's also uh, you know AI-generated voice narration in some of these cases. And uh, yeah, broadly it varies, but the general report is that it seems like AI is being used at a large scale in this uh, operation. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the critical things we've talked about in the past is AI as an enabler of like kind of rapid responses, 
because you know it's so quick to generate content with it. Well, here we have it, right? So apparently, one of the the key defining characteristics of this effort has been how quickly uh, these videos have been able to react to current events and spread the CCP line, the communist uh, the Communist Party line. So uh, what they're I mean they've referred to it by the way as one of the most successful influence operations related to China ever witnessed on social media. This is what the Australian uh, Institute here is, is saying. Um, apparently, it's involved, or it seems to have involved, basically just feeding English language scripts into text-to-video software and other programs like Andre just said. You know, no technical expertise required. Clips come out in minutes, and you're seeing just like a, a wild diversity of, of different formats and, and genres. But um, it, it does seem like there were a couple of tells that these things were actually sort of like propagandized materials. Uh, there were some videos that featured, as they say, titles and scripts that seemed to be direct translations of common Chinese phrases and the names of Chinese companies. And others mentioned information uh, that could be traced to news stories that were produced and circulated primarily in mainland China. So obviously kind of triangulating the sources a little bit there, uh, some probably some like anomaly detection and, and technical analysis that goes into that. Um, but this, of course, isn't the first time that we've seen stuff like this. And there seems to have been an uptick in, in the lead up to the 2024 presidential election. Uh, you know, Meta said last month that they got rid of like almost 5,000 accounts uh, that were Chinese and that were impersonating Americans to debate political issues. And we've seen similar things from you know, Microsoft had that big bombshell where they talked about uh, all those inauthentic accounts that, again, were Chinese and we're talking about uh, you know the U.S. using energy weapons to uh, to kick off the Hawaii wildfires back in August. So you know this is part of part of an escalation, part of a portfolio of, of strategies that the CCP is using. But just remarkable. I mean, 120 million views um, and all, like three quarters of a million, you know, 730 thousand subscribers since last year uh, collected on all these channels. With they add occasional ads from Western companies to boot. So really kind of remarkable. Last thing I'll mention, you know, we talk about uh, the Russian interference operation for the 2016 presidential election that was, you know, talked about an awful lot. Um, there, the main vector was Facebook, and about 126 million people were reached through that campaign. Well, here, we're not even near the election. We got a year to go, and we're seeing 120 million views on YouTube alone um, just from this one effort in a context where we know there are tons of others. So, you know, if you thought 2016 was going to was a big deal, if you thought 2020 was a big deal, uh, it seems like we're in for, for a world of hurt, hurt here coming up to uh, 2024. That's right. Uh, it does not seem it does not seem that this is using sort of advanced AI, so to speak. So the AI generated narration isn't of the sort in general that is sort of like realistic to a point that you'd confuse it with a human. Uh, and uh, yeah, in general, it still seems to be using uh, let's say cruder techniques rather than the most state of the art. Uh, Possibilities for deepfakes and propaganda, but you know the sheer scale of this is is pretty shocking, I suppose. Moving on to the lightning round, the first story is AI is a danger to the financial system. Regulators warn for the first time. The regulators in question is the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which is a team of federal regulators in the US, and they have formally classified AI as an emerging vulnerability due to its potential to introduce risks uh, such as cybersecurity, compliance, and privacy. So I don't know that there's too much 
to draw here. It's kind of a broad uh, classification. Yeah, I think this is just about providing kind of a broad level uh, flag for the space generally. Um, you know, because they do cite it like a million different things, all the things you'd expect. You know, there's a risk for, you know, biased or inaccurate results that could affect people when they're going to you know, take out a loan. There's systemic risk from having many of these systems interacting together and, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, the, the, the FSOC, uh, which is the uh, Financial Stability Oversight Council, was created in the aftermath of, of 2008. Um, and it, it's really meant to deal with these sorts of systemic risks. Um, uh, and that, that's why stability is part of their part of their name. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, this is to provide air cover for further initiatives. Part of the the momentum that arguably started in the U.S. with uh, a lot of the White House's executive order work, um, and we're seeing it now reflected in uh, you know in the Treasury and, and elsewhere. So you know, we'll we'll see what comes of this. But at least this is kind of a, a public acknowledgement that yeah, you know, big picture systemic risks are here. Next story is Anonymous Sudan Hacking Group sets sights on ChatGPT. So Anonymous Sudan is the actual name of this politically motivated hacking group, and they have claimed responsibility of a few ChatGPT outages, uh, basically due to the DOS attacks. And they are saying that they will continue targeting ChatGPT until, uh, I guess, it's it's kind of broad, but they, it says that ChatGPT has to stop uh, dehumanizing views of Palestinians uh, for them to stop. Uh, and, and this relates to uh, OpenAI's head of research platform, uh, Tal Broda, uh, kind of expressing some views in support of uh, Israel. Uh, online on social media. So similarly in response to, I guess, an employee of OpenAI expressing certain views. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess not a, a totally unheard of type of attack. Uh, you know, DDoS is pretty you know, pretty common strategy. Interesting that its target is now a service like ChatGPT, which a lot of companies, you know, depend on critically, right? So if you shut down ChatGPT, you're shutting down all those companies as well. Um, so it, it does raise the question of the extent to which it is a kind of critical infrastructure at this point. And if it is, by the way, if you do think of ChatGPT as critical infrastructure, then all of a sudden uh, that has some implications for the authorities of uh, the U.S. government in, in kind of defending it and uh, protecting it from these sorts of attacks. So uh, I think this is kind of interesting. Um, it's a target for terrorism. Who knew? Uh, this is kind of a, an interesting new twist in the OpenAI saga. My God. And next up, we have scenario planning for an AGI future. And this is not a huge story. It's uh, basically an economic analysis of a bunch of different possibilities with respect to the emergence of AI and AI timelines. Um, you know, one is like, well, you know, AI is not going to, or AGI rather, is not going to completely uh, get rid of the need for human labor. You know, historically, uh, every time we've automated one chunk of human labor, human intelligence has been relegated to like a different niche uh, to work on the, the sort of harder problems that are then created, the more intellectual ones. So there's a scenario that says, well, maybe that'll just keep going and we'll get business as usual. Uh, then there are more transformative views. If we have AGI in 20 years and you know it, it ends up kind of automating everything that humans can do, what happens to the labor market? Uh, what happens to the uh, bargaining power of of labor? You know the labor capital uh, balance and, and all that stuff. 
And then kind of the same question, but what if this happens in five years? And they've kind of charted out what they expect to have happen from a macroeconomic standpoint, um, which is kind of cool. I think the, the most noteworthy reason that, that this is actually worth talking about, you know, similar analyses have been done in the past, um, is that this was actually published on the website of the IMF, uh, the International Monetary Fund. So like very, very kind of... Um, I don't know how to describe it, but like an austere uh, uh, organization that may not normally be associated with like you know, dramatic uh, statements about AGI. We've seen this space get normalized to the point where they're now openly having conversations about like, what if we have AGI in five years? So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, there wasn't a conversation about what if it's two years or less, by the way, which I thought actually was kind of an interesting oversight because there are some people who, uh, who think that may be the case. Um, but uh, what they do say, and I think this is worth noting, um, by the way, the person who, who wrote it was a professor in the Department of Economics at uh, the University of Virginia. But one of the things he says is, I estimate that each of these scenarios, so basically the business as usual scenario, the AGI in 20 and, and the AGI in five year scenario, um, he says, I estimate they each have greater than 10% probability of materializing. So again, you know, that sort of view being more normalized in um, uh, you know, on the IMF website, which I thought was kind of interesting and, and unexpected. And the last story for this section is the widening web of effective altruism in AI security from VentureBeat. And this is really more of a, uh, I guess, overview. Uh, there's no news here per se, but it does present kind of a, the background and explanation of how effective altruism, this movement that has been around for a little while and, and broadly is concerned with uh, being effectively altruistic. So they have a sort of very rationalist perspective where you need to be able to sort of objectively or scientifically determine the best way to give away money to have a positive impact on the world, broadly speaking. Well, there is a big component of effective altruism now, which is worrying about AI risk and X risk. And the two kind of have been very much hand in hand for a while now. And this, uh, yeah, this article kind of presents a lot of the details of organizations, people, et cetera, that are effective altruists, affiliated or related, and how they are impacting in AI security and, and I guess, in AI more broadly. Yeah. And, and this is on the back of a, a really kind of uh, widely publicized Politico piece that came out a couple of weeks ago that highlighted what was portrayed as the undue influence of effective altruist aligned organizations in shaping US policy on AI. Uh, they highlighted in particular that there were staffers in various senatorial offices in the US that were funded by this one entity called Open Philanthropy, which was famously funded by Facebook co-founder Dustin Moskovitz to the tune of billions of dollars. Uh, Open Phil, as it's sometimes known affectionately, uh, is the main funder for AI safety, or one of the key funders. I frankly don't know a single AI safety uh, organization that does not derive fairly meaningful fractions of their funding from OpenPhil. Um, and, and there's been a, a debate over the extent to which this is appropriate. Now, unfortunately, uh, OpenPhil for a really long time was just the only game in town. And frankly, the same is true of effective altruism. Uh, whether or not you agree with that life philosophy, I, like I personally don't. I'm not an effective altruist. Um, but you know, one of the things is that these were the first people to pay attention to catastrophic risks from AI, and in particular, like the alignment failure scenarios. And so, yeah, like when you look around the ecosystem, no duh, everybody has some connection to effective altruism. And I think that is 
an unfortunate feature of the space. I will say, by the way, uh, my, my company is like literally the only AI safety company I'm aware of, the only major one that derives zero funding from this, uh, this group and, and, and this whole ecosystem. And we were actually quite intentional about that. Like we built an entire for-profit product line to make money so that we could be independent and offer independent advice not because we you know, think these are you know, bad actors, but just because we, we saw this risk and, and thought that it was important to preserve our own independence. Um, we're now seeing those chickens come home to roost. Uh, you can say fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at this. Um, I think a lot of the people here, are their hearts are in the right place. Uh, they're citing just objective data and papers that are being published on AI safety to back up their case, but it just it looks bad. And, and that's kind of the big problem here. I think that ultimately uh, this journalist is... Sadly, I think has kind of done a sophomoric job where they've like they've been smart enough to kind of to look beyond it, follow the money, and where it's led them to is this conclusion about the centralization of funding in the space, which again I deeply agree is a problem. My entire company is like literally based on that premise of it's being a problem. But um, the more fundamental question is: Are these concerns justified? Are the people who are advising the government uh, doing so from a place of, of sort of righteous concern, and are they doing it knowledgeably? And frankly, I think that the answer is actually yes, yes, and yes. And so uh, this is, I think, an, a bit of an unfortunate and easy takedown to write, but deeper understanding of the space would, I think, reveal a much more complex and nuanced story that we've been navigating for the past like three or four years actively. And um, it's not obvious who, who the right people are, who the wrong people are, but there are a lot of people just you know, trying to do their best to take this AI risk story quite seriously seriously as we do, but happen to have been forced to take money from these organizations because you know, not, not everyone has a background in product. Not everybody can sort of spin up a whole product line just to maintain their independence. Um, so yeah, I think a bit of an unfortunate story here. A lot of uh, drive-bys uh, linking effective altruism to Sam Bankman-Fried, who is their, you know, one of their very famous advocates. There are many versions of effective altruism, and the one that Sam Bankman-Fried adhered to uh, seems to have been especially toxic. Um, again, I have deep disagreements with the effective altruist movement philosophically, but I don't think it's fair to say you know SBF's like personal belief set it maps on directly to all of effective altruism. I think that's a little bit reductive and uh, and somewhat oversimplified. Yeah, I think um, if you've been living in Silicon Valley, then you're probably aware of effective altruism as, yeah. <laughs> as I am. And uh, it's, yeah, as you said, I think it's a fair characterization that effective altruists, just because of being nerdy tech people in, in large part, uh, were thinking about AI and were worrying about AI safety well ahead of, let's say, it becoming mainstream and, and popular and big. And so there is kind of a historical side of why this is. And this characterization of the widening web of effective altruism in AI security is, is, is kind of weird because effective <laughs> altruism is like a very broad mindset. And to be fair, like there is a community around it. There are people yeah, that yeah. know people. So it is a real thing that is worth being aware of to some extent. But at the same time, it shouldn't be thought of as some sort of organization uh, in itself. It's just kind of a, a general way of thinking that many have been influenced by. And uh, yeah, it's, I don't know that there's, it's something interesting to know, but also let's not think of vector altruism as some sort of like cult that's, shadowly controlling the scene or something, right? Evil cabal. 
And on to our last section, synthetic media and art, with just a couple stories. The first one is from 404 Media, and it is titled, Facebook is being overrun with stolen AI-generated images that people think are real. So 404 Media has been doing a lot of good kind of investigative journalism. We've covered a few of their stories, and this is another example where they show that, yeah, AI-generated images are big on Facebook, and they are using basically as engagement bait. So, you know, they, they are posts on pages like Dogs for Life showing dogs and yeah, people are generating, you know, these cute dogs, I guess, to make money. And so there, yeah, there's apparently a lot of these images. It's being, it's flooding Facebook and it's kind of a concern because, uh, you know, this is likely to happen all over at any platform where you can game people and um, kind of create uh, AI modified or AI generated images to create content uh, for yourself. And, and to get a little bit more specific, they, they highlight one particular example of this human standing with a carved dog. And it, it's kind of interesting. Like there is a real human with a real carved dog as the initial images, but then there are dozens of kind of variations of this that get, have been posted in various places, right? So stealing or at least remixing with AI to a point where you're just creating the same thing but slightly different is, um, yeah, kind of behind a lot of this. And, uh, yeah, it's concerning, but uh, it is what it is, I guess. Yeah, I think one of the things this really does, it reminds us of, of how much this is entering the domain of like A-B testing and rapid optimization of like for virality. We, we saw this in the early days of like digital media where people would optimize and A-B test headlines. So like, you know, The Verge or, or whoever existed would have like, you know, headline one, headline two, take them head to head, see which one wins, and then rapidly say, okay, let's keep the winning one. Let's add a new headline and keep going. And that's how you got to a lot of the early virality stuff. Um, so I think this is just that on steroids, but for general purpose content. And uh, yeah, it'll be kind of cool to see where that goes and a little scary. Yeah. And uh, this article also highlights uh, this new group. Uh, there's a group on Facebook called Um Isn't That AI, which has <laughs> uh, over 2,700 members and is kind of committed to detecting essentially AI and, and tracing back uh, to the real kind of creators of the content originally and, and you know, spreading awareness of this issue. So um, pretty in-depth article with some examples and details and uh, seemingly a pretty real trend that is on Facebook and likely going to be on other internet platforms, if not already, then soon. And finally, Pakistan's former prime minister is using an AI voice clone to campaign from prison. So former uh, Pakistan PM Imran Khan uh, is in jail right now. And uh, essentially he's campaigning. So his political party is the PTI. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. It's the Pakistan TI. Uh, so there's a four minute video that surfaced that featured his voice. Um, and uh, it was released during a virtual rally as well uh, with a caption stating that it was based on Khan's notes. Uh, so apparently he provided just like a script to his party that was you know edited and processed or whatever. 
um, but then that was converted into audio using Eleven Labs, which we've covered a lot on the show before. So Eleven Labs actually like making real headlines with this, um, and uh, and they're saying here, you know, look, it's it's a no brainer to do this because the guy can't attend the political rally, so he's got a proxy essentially that allows the voters to connect with him. Uh, more sort of intimately, if you will, but at scale. So maybe a, a new era in terms of politics, uh, especially if this sort of thing becomes accepted and normalized, because uh, you know maybe you don't have to be at all the campaign rallies. Maybe you can hold rallies in like all of the cities at the same time uh, if you know, there's a video generated avatar, which doesn't sound like a Black Mirror episode at all. Yeah, we've seen examples before of uh, campaigners. Um, adapting their message to different dialects in India, for example. So there's some precedent for this. We've seen um, examples in Korea of political ads being AI generated uh, when you know two different uh, campaign uh, candidates actually both started leveraging AI to put out very localized ads, very uh, micro-targeted ads. So this is, I guess, another example in that trend of using AI in politics to have AI speak in the voice of the candidate while the candidate kind of presents, provides a message, but doesn't actually record it. Uh, And yeah, it's another example of a trend that I think will be pretty omnipresent pretty soon. And with that fun story, we are finished with this episode of Last Week in AI. Once again, you can find all these articles in the description. And also, you can go to lastweekin.ai for the text newsletter with all these articles and more. Please do share this with your friends if you think they would also enjoy this content. And we do appreciate nice reviews that make us feel nice uh, (laughs) if you post them on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or elsewhere. Uh, As I said, you can contact us by emailing contact at lastweekin.ai with any thoughts or suggestions. But more than anything, we would appreciate if people keep listening. So keep tuning in.